This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the environmentalist Oliver Millman about his eloquent and alarming book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires that Run the World. Your book, Oliver, comes with a long list of wonders to behold, not the least of which is the fact that without insects, human life on Earth would cease to exist. Maybe you can begin by sketching a landscape from which the insects have vanished, and then you can describe the vast scale of the work done by insects to make the Earth habitable for human beings. Yes, well, a world without insects would be a particularly horrifying and grim place and certainly not a place we would want to live in, and indeed a it wouldn't be a place we'd be able to live in. The uh, biologist D.O. Wilson, who passed away this year, estimated we'd only last a few months in a world without insects. Um, it would initially be a very quiet place, a place without the buzzing of bees or whining of mosquitoes or the flutter of butterflies, then a much drabber place, a much less colourful place. Uh, the plants would go big and small. You'd start seeing the accumulation of waste, uh, insects, do all this kind of incredible behind-the-scenes work to dispose of waste, bodies, feces, and pretty much everything else that um, we, we don't really think about that much. And then uh, the real crisis, I think, would kick in when we're thinking about our bellies, the the idea that uh, so much food would be wrenched away from our plates because the insects went around to pollinate them would would uh, cause mass malnutrition, then starvation it would be a, a particularly horrible time to be on earth um, and you could see things quickly spiraling out of control into into conflict and, and despair it would be a, a very very grim and horrible place to to be in and, and something we would certainly want to avoid yes there would be no bird song because no birds would be left yes that's right about half of the world's Birds rely upon insects uh, for their uh, food, and so you would be without your swallows and warblers and all kinds of other wonderful birds would be uh, gone. I mean, the, these are birds that require thousands and thousands of insects in order to raise a single chick. So even a small decline in insects uh, affects birds, and we're already seeing that um, horrible reality play out in, in countries such as France and Germany. Uh, in Canada, even in the heart of the Amazon rainforest, scientists have been able to ascertain that um, insect-eating birds are declining more quickly than um, birds that have a more omnivorous diet, such as crows, for example. So we're, we're starting to see, uh, have a little inkling of what a world without insects would look like in some places, and it, it's not a particularly pretty picture. 95% of the living things on Earth are insects, is that right? Well, according to some estimates, yes. I mean, we, the, the incredible thing about insects is that they comprise three quarters of all named species on Earth right now. But that's only a fraction of what there probably is out there. I mean, there are estimates that uh, there could be, I mean, what we know right now is there's a million species, named species. There could be 5 million. There could be 10 million. 
some estimates put it as high as 30 million. So um, in, the world is not awash with rats or sheep or even people. It's beetles. There's 350,000 species of beetle. There's 7,000, more than 7,000 species of just assassin flies, which is this kind of small fly that spends its life sucking the internal organs out of other other small insect creatures. Um, not a particularly glamorous or ce- celebrated creature, but there's more species of this one type of fly than there are of all mammals in the world. Uh, the whales, the dogs, the cats, everything all combined. So the the sweep of insect life is is vast uh, uh it's it's particularly deep and that is i think is what made the idea of them being in decline uh, of them being in trouble almost comp- incomprehensible to to many people until now but we now know that they are in decline that they are in the the midst of a a mass extinction is is that correct well the it's hard to kind of get the exact contours of where this will end and whether if it will end in a mass extinction, but it's certainly the biggest crisis they've faced in the 400 million year history on earth. And of course, insects are the great survivors. They've survived five great mass extinctions that this planet has, has dealt life on this, uh, on this earth. Um, they, they've outlived the dinosaurs. Um, they, they're the great adapters, the great survivors. They can find their way through very sticky situations uh, in our Earth's past. But there's a lot of evidence that points that this is the greatest challenge that they have ever faced, much like the broader ecological crisis that um, is descending upon the world now that a lot of scientists refer to as the sixth great extinction the world has ever faced. Insects are at the pointy end of that. Um, it's estimated by the United Nations we could lose half a million species of insect by the, the midpoint of this century. Um, there are several studies showing that insect populations around the world are falling by 1% to 2% a year. And if you extrapolate that out, that's um, obviously uh, particularly alarming. Um, I don't think there's many scientists out there saying that we can lose all insects there's a kind of general agreement we would go before insects do because we simply could not survive um, with so few of them around. We're just changing quite radically the composition of them as well as, well as their numbers. What drew your interest to insects and their plight? I mean, do you start out as a young boy, as a nascent entomologist? Tell us a little bit about your travels and your researches, because you seem to be have been all over the world talking to people in Africa, Europe, the Americas, the rainforest. I mean, it's it's a it's a wonderful collection of observations. Well, thank you. I mean, I've always been fascinated by wildlife, the natural world. As a young boy, I used to kind of um, turn over logs and rocks and poke around, see what was under there, kind of earwigs and ants. I was kind of fascinated by ants and the the societal structure they have, the tunnels they build, the way that they um the way that they live life in cooperation with each other. That always really interested me. Um I think then going on to become an environmental journalist, uh, writing for The Guardian, uh, of course most attention is seized by topics such as climate change and and conservation issues around the big kind of charismatic uh, well-known creatures of our time the the rhinos the uh, 
lion, polar bear, the tiger, polar right? bear, yeah, the tigers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the things that you know adorn sports teams' badges and uh, raise a lot of conservation money and um, get people very excited and mournful when they see uh, nature documentaries showing that they're um, in trouble in, in some way. So, I mean, that was I was naturally drawn to that as most of us are, because we identify with these creatures more, more than insects. Insects have this kind of troubled relationship with humans in that we see them as pests, annoyances in, in most cases. So I, I wasn't really thinking about them as, as being hugely consequential or in, in some any, any danger at all until a few years ago when all these studies started coming out for the first time looking at insect numbers. I mean, if you go back in history, we've always had a kind of interest in insects. Um, Winston Churchill kept butterflies to kind of ease his depression. Um, Walter Rothschild, the, the banker, dressed up fleas in costumes. Um, uh, Nabokov has got um, a cabinet of um, butterfly genitalia at uh, Harvard. I mean, they, we've always had these kind of famous figures who are um, interested in insects, but almost as curiosities rather than looking at their conservation value. And I think it's only been in the last kind of three to four years that we started thinking about numbers of insects because previously it seemed pointless to count them because they seemed everywhere. And why would you bother doing that? Um, But there were these quite shocking studies coming out of Europe uh, and North America showing quite startling declines in insects, kind of 97% down in Denmark, seventy-six um, percent down in uh, nature preserves in Germany. Um, uh, hu- huge declines of of kind of ninety percent or more in the the rainforests of Puerto Rico. I mean, and just in the last few decades as well. We're not talking about over centuries. We're talking about just in a few short decades. Uh, some parts of the world have seen an almost total eclipse of insects, which is quite astonishing when you think about it. When you think about the the, the sheer numbers of insects out there, their ability to reproduce, the fact that they've survived so much in the past, and yet they're right now the the very kind of endpoint of our of our development uh, in terms of conservation. It seems uh, we we're wiping them out, um, and that really kind of struck me as something worth writing about. It, it kind of the, our relationship to insects and how we're often revolted by them, uh, also. It interested me, and I, and I thought it was worth kind of kind of capturing some of that in a book to kind of illustrate to people uh, what's going on, but also what's at stake. What happens when you lose so many insects? Yeah, so you mentioned that in 1875, the immense concentration of locusts in the United States was calculated to cover an area larger than California, but the species had appeared invincible, but by 1902, it had been tipped into extinction. I mean, it's that kind of thing that yeah. gets what gets one's attention, right? Yes. And of course, and that happened in the American West. But if you speak to anybody in California now, nobody would think uh, at all. It would be incomprehensible for them to think that locusts once um, – you know, blotted out the sun overhead, um, and we our expectations and our and of the world around us changes quite quite quickly between generations. What was normal to us as children uh, can seem um, very different to those in the next generation, and that and that, that um, phenomena is playing out a lot now at the moment when it comes to insects, with the idea that uh, you could drive across country and have 
your windshield completely clear of insects where I think many of us of a certain age remembered taking car journeys where where you'd have to stop and scrape insects off the off the windshield um a lot of journeys now i mean i took a journey in montana last last year and i drove around for a week uh, in a very sparsely populated part of uh, the us and uh, there wasn't a single bug on my windshield by the end of that week and that should be disturbing and alarming but i think for many people growing up now that is the norm um and and like you say with the locusts that previously uh, played the um uh, America West. They were so numerous. They, like I said, they blotted out the, the sun. They chewed every skerrick of, of vegetation up from uh, around people's farms. They even chewed the clothes off people's backs. I mean, kind of, kind of almost horror movie scenes that played out, but completely forgotten now. Uh, our expectations of what insect life is has, has shifted. There's uh, this baseline. It's called this um, shifting baseline syndrome, whereby. Uh, our memories of the past um, uh, fade, uh, and a new standards, new norms are, there, are then set as, as as the world changes around us. So uh, that is a concern. As as these declines kind of gather pace, we may become very used to a world uh, with uh, far fewer insects, a quieter place, a much duller place, much less vibrant. Uh, and then they, we have to face the kind of cascading consequences of that in terms of food security and access to medicines and all the other things the insects provide us. So, yeah, we're seeing that kind of play out in real time now, it feels. Yes, I, 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 I'm old enough. To, I grew up in California in the 40s, and I can remember the windshield being smeared with, with insects. Talk about it. It's hard to measure their presence or absence. I mean, you talk about a man in Britain who did a long series of experiments and measurements with a car a car that he would drive up and down over the same patch of road and try to measure the insects on the windshield. Who, who was that? Yeah, well, he's actually in Denmark. Is this a scientist called Anders Papenmöller, and he um, he grew up in this kind of rural area of northern Denmark. And his his big his big thing as a kid was birds, and he was really into ornithology. Uh, was really passionate about them, kind of banded them as a, as a child. Who was really uh, enthusiastic about um, seeing birds everywhere, and, and noticed as he was growing up that there just seemed to be fewer and fewer birds around. That was shared anecdotally by people around him, not not scientists, just regular people would say, oh, yeah, there seem to be fewer birds around. Also, the insects just don't seem to be as present as they once were. He remembered beetles kind of jumping out of hay bales and bees buzzing around hedgerows and all those kinds of things that indicate a kind of plethora of insect life. And so he said about this kind of rather eccentric experiment um, whereby he picked a stretch of road in Denmark and he drove up and down it nine times a day. And he's been doing that every summer since 1997. He kind of gets into this beat-up old 1960s Ford Anglia, gets to about 30, 40 miles an hour, and then waits for the bugs to hit his windshield and then stops to stops to count them at the end of the stretch of road. And the decline he found a quite amazing 97 percent uh, decline uh from 1997 to just a couple of years ago which uh, again is not a normal kind of result you find in conservation biology you look through these kind of research papers you don't see 
declines like that. You don't see such huge changes. Um, scientists spend a lot of their time picking out small details, small changes in the natural world or, or other things around us and, and, and coming up for th with theories for why. He, he'd, he'd essentially documented the complete upending of this, this area of Denmark, a complete transformation. It wasn't a subtle change. It was, it was an earthquake, a kind of an apocalypse, and in, in quite a sta seemingly stable, quiet uh, area. We're not talking about an industrial area. We're not talking about a war zone. We're talking about a wealthy country with very s standard farming practices, very standard kind of uh, you know Western European ways of approaching land management and conservation and so on. What, what many people kind of held up as the kind of standard of, of how it should be done elsewhere. And yet there are these uh, enormous declines and it kind of led him and others to think, well, my goodness, if it's so that bad here, what's it like everywhere else? Talk about the prime value of insects is pollination and how do the leviathan of our global food production hinges upon bees, flies, and other tiny pollinators. How does that work? Well, a world without insects would mean you would have quite a, a dull breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I'm afraid, um, Lewis. You'd, you'd be having a lot of kind of oats and rice and corn, but not, not much else, really. Um, about a third of the world's food crops depend on um, insect pollinations to reproduce, and three-quarters of the world's flowering plants. So if you like any kind of colorful plant in your uh, flower in your garden or or out in in uh, urban areas or out in rural areas then um, you should be thankful for insects for those too but um, in terms of food pollination it's been estimated uh, insects uh, contribute around um, 570 billion dollars a year worth of food pollination uh, services they create you know millions of tons of honey uh, millions of tons of uh, apples, cranberries, melons, uh, almonds, broccoli, blueberries, cherries. I mean, there's a vast array of things that um, uh, insects pollinate and help provide to us. Um, and obviously bees are the, the ones that get the plaudits for this, but it's often uh, flies and moths and wasps and beetles as well. Um, I mean, if you think about chocolate, for example, we're dependent uh, upon a tiny little midge that gets inside the cacao plant to to pollinate it for for all the world's um, chocolate production, uh, I don't think they get much thanks for that. Um, ice cream is dependent on dairy that comes from cows that are fed alfalfa, which again is pollinated by insects. So you're talking about multi-billion-dollar industries. Uh, cotton as well is another really important one that. Um, is is very is is kind of hinges entirely on uh, insect pollination. There's no substitute for them, despite all the other you know technological advances we've seen across the agricultural industry in the last few decades. They haven't been able to repl replicate insects because it's simply impossible to. Um, so the idea that we are in a kind of pollination crunch, that pollination is on the decline, um, should focused minds, it should really concern us, uh, especially given the growing uh, population of the world. We, we may hit 10 billion people this uh, the midpoint of the century, and there, there have been several scientific warnings that 
if pollination keeps declining at, at current rates at the, t- uh, the same time that um, uh, population is increasing, we're setting ourselves up for a, an enormous um, food security challenge. Talk about the small industry that we now have of raising bees in one part of the country and sending them by long-haul truck to other parts of the country. So, I mean, it, there's a traffic in, in, in bees. Well, I mean, in the U.S. in particular, uh, honeybees are, are pretty much a kind of agricultural input, much like a, a cow or a pig or a tractor, really. I mean, they are so vital to the production of food in the U.S. that um, uh, the value of honeybee hives has rocketed. If you're a beekeeper now, it used to be a kind of slightly bucolic hobby that you would do on the sideline. You would keep a few hives, um, collect the honey to smear on your toast. Uh, it would be just a kind of nice little pastime. Now it's become this kind of contracted service that props up U.S. agriculture. So once a year, all the pretty much all of the honeybee hives in the U.S. are strapped onto trucks and sent to the Central Valley in California to help pollinate uh, the almond crop there. I mean, California grows about 90% of all the world's almonds. It's a highly lucrative industry. It's a growing industry. And and because of the kind of mass blanketing of, of uh, uh, the Central Valley with this one particular nut, um, the local bees are simply unable to, to pollinate them. So they require the the influx of these um, of millions and millions of hives of, of of honeybees from across the US, and it's and it's created a, a kind of an economy in, in its own. I mean, I I went out there and um, I met a bee broker, someone whose job it is to match honey honeybee keepers with uh, farmers to ensure the farmers have the right pollination. That's her job is simply to kind of match them she works two months a year and it earns her enough money that she can spend the rest of the year golfing Uh, (laughs) i I spoke to police detectives there who uh, are kind of dealing with an explosion in hive thefts there are bee rustlers out there who will uh, snatch beehives from trucks or when they're laid down by the side of the road they'll kind of um uh scuttle in and, and and put them on their own trucks and take them away because the value of hives have become so valuable. Um, they, you can actually make a very good criminal enterprise out of stealing bees now. So they, the bees are becoming um, increasingly important to us, um, particularly honeybees. It's one species that, of course, is imported to the US. It isn't a, a native bee. But it's become so enmeshed now in the agricultural system that the whole thing would collapse without we're also starting to experiment with making, using technology to make robot bees that will, how does that work? I mean, you've talked to people that were experimenting with the, I think it's called a Dell fly. Yeah, that's right. So the researchers in the Netherlands who are um, creating the Dell fly, which is this kind of robotic uh, kind of fly, much bigger than a standard fly. Uh, there are also researchers at Harvard University who are, have spent quite a few years working on robotic bees. They've created these kind of kind of synthetic soft muscles that um, power the wings and they can swim in water and burst out of the water and fly. Very impressive innovations. Um, there's other companies doing work uh, to replicate their pollination work by drones. So 
there's this one company that makes a kind of large helicopter-like drone that can hover uh, over apple orchards in upstate New York and pollinate them from above to, to kind of replicate what bees do. So th- there is this kind of technological uh, response to, uh, you know, insect declines, uh, as well as researchers simply being astonished and, and enraptured by the abilities of bees and flies. I mean, these are creatures that are extremely nim- nimble, dexterous. They can have great logistical abilities for such small creatures. They have amazing decision-making processes. And so it's actually quite a challenge for humans to recreate that in robot form because these are finely honed creatures over millions of years in terms of what they do. I think I would I would say that the idea that technology is going to come in and save us is perhaps misplaced. I think we often look for a quick fix when it comes to new inventions for our problems and climate change is a good example of that uh, if you think about the pandemic we kind of well, many of us thought you know the, just the invention of a vaccine will will just see the end of that we tend to grasp for that and so i think some people are with the when it comes to the insect crisis that we'll be able to replace bees with robotic bees but um, there's very little evidence that that will actually work out in terms of the cost, uh, the logistics, the human labor involved, and just just the sheer abilities of them. I mean, you've got a hive of 80,000 bees. Um, do you think you can really get 80,000 tiny robots to do exactly what they do in, a, in, a, you know, in the same kind of cost-effective way? I mean, it's, it's kind of fanciful. A lot of entomologists kind of are quite uh, derisive of the idea of uh, robotic bees replacing bees. You talk about the damage done to insects by pesticides, but also talk about the ways and means of modern farming. I mean, Britain being manicured to death and the cult of the lawn and some of our landscaping and farming projects don't work to the advantage of insects. How, how does that go? Well, uh, I mean, we like to kind of lecture um, Brazil about um, cutting down the Amazon rainforest, but um, certainly in Britain, uh, you know, you, you come across as a hypocrite because pretty much all of the kind of ancient uh, forest in Britain has been chopped down uh, to make way for farmland and a little bit for housing. You see the model is supersized when it comes to the US. So not only is land being cleared in terms of forest, although some has come back in, in recent decades, the, the scale of farming is now so huge. So the idea of a kind of family, the idea of farming that many of us have is a kind of family farmer on a relatively small patch of land, farming all kinds of different things, you know, maybe has some chickens and maybe had an apple orchard, maybe grow some crops in one of the fields. But that's not really the case in in. In the US in particular, monocultural large-scale farming is now pretty much the norm. Uh, Smaller and smaller number of companies now own uh, more and more of the land. So you see these huge, huge fields of just a single crop with nothing else there. Um, No weeds at the border, no kind of diversity of wildflowers uh, that insects like for, for food and for shelter. Everything's farmed right up to the edge to maximize profits. And of course, that's then doused in um, in chemicals to get rid of pests, which are deadly for insects. So, if you're a bee, you're kind of looking around and you're thinking, "Well, there's not much here for me to eat, um, and uh, a lot of the land here is poisoned." So, we've made we've made um, the land as inhospitable 
uh, as possible to to insects. Um, one researcher said it to me in terms of farming just soy or corn or wheat or nothing else. It's it's like we've covered the land in in chips and uh, nothing else but chips. And if you don't like chips, then tough. Or if you're allergic to chips, then tough. That's all you've got. And that's kind of what we're serving up to insects. And it's been um, pretty disastrous for them. In terms of our lawns, I mean, lawns are really interesting because when I looked into them, uh, I was looking at some figures showing that uh, lawns are actually the biggest irrigated crop in America in terms of area. It's actually more land is given over to lawns in the US than corn, about three times greater than corn crops. So if you add together all people's lawns, you'd get this huge kind of area of usually kind of manicured grass cut down, looks very kind of neat and tidy, usually fringed by, you know, some plants that we think look nice and attractive. Often they're kind of ornamental plants, often from abroad, not native. So therefore, not very conducive for uh, native pollinators. Um, insects can do very little in lawns, especially when the grass is cut down uh, uh, to the quick. Um, we t- also tend to rake our lawns um, of leaves. So we, there's very little habitat there for, for insects. And of course, we often use chemicals on our uh, yards as well. So um, I, whether intentionally or not, we've created a kind of hellscape for insects in, in rural areas, in the suburbs, in the centre of cities, and it's very hard for them to find a little niche to survive. All right, let's talk. go to your last chapter. It's called A Human Emergency, and you have a conversation with a man named Floyd Shockley at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. Talk about the collection of insects at the Smithsonian and then come to your conclusion as to where we are now. Yeah, right. Well, if you if you ever go to the collection, it's I mean, it's it's quite incredible. It's one of the um, most amazing repositories of life on Earth, really, or specimens, at least there's about 35 million insect specimens kept in drawers, huge, these huge metal storage cabinets across five floors of uh, the National Museum of Natural History in uh, D.C., um, which is this uh, enormous building uh, not too far from from the White House and National Mall. And Shockley was was kind of, he's a huge Beatle fan, uh, not the band, the actual animals. He, he's, he's got thousands and thousands of uh, specimens. He's, he's very kind of critical of the way that we, conduct our lives in terms of our distaste for insects, our our lack of appreciation for them, the fact that we have embraced this idea of monocultural farming and and, uh, lawns rather than giving them insects a space to live. But he he kind of feels that things are so bad that we may at some point have to think about um, uh, leaving this planet. But even then, our dependence on... um, bees and other insects would not end. I mean, we, we may think that we won't want to take other animals with us if we ever left to go to Mars, but we would still need to eat. And so if the humans were the first uh, animal to, to exist on another planet, then a bee would probably be the second. That would be a good bet. A bee would be the second because we would need to eat. We would need to pollinate our food. 
and I think him saying that really kind of crystallized to me the kind of the sheer importance and reliance we have on insects, even if we um, treat them quite miserably um, from time to time. Well, you've written a wonderful book, Oliver, and thank you, Oliver Millman, for talking with us today about his new book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Lewis. It's been lovely. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details. <laughs>